Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hey, Eucalyptus Knickerbocker, I am Mariah Rose. Okay, there you go. That's that's what you're going with. That's your given name. Well, welcome everybody. If this is your first time, this is a podcast about the 80s. If you're returning, you're going to hear about the 80s. Congrats. The doy. <laughs> Cheers. Uh, wow. How you been? I've been good. I don't know. You know, it's it's still a weird season of life, but we got some good news. We got some bad news. We got some middle ground news. How about you? Pretty good. Um, there's not a lot, not, to, not a lot to report. Yeah. I've been kind of going a little stir crazy and I, um, yeah. I don't know why I just figured it would be a good idea to uh, reorganize all of my VHS the other day, which was actually really comforting and soothing. I, I enjoyed it. I had it, a good time. It is like a mental health break for you, but I have a question. How many times do you think you have done that since quarantine started almost a year ago? Like a full reorganization versus a minor one? I, Probably like five or six times. Five or six full and how many minor? Oh, well, we're not going to discuss that. <laughs> this is a, a podcast, not a therapy session. Okay, okay, okay. All right, everybody. Well, we're all coping in our own ways. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this week is I'm so excited about this week. This is going to be a really fun one. Yeah, it almost became too much. It is a lot to handle. So that being said, we can't go into every everything because there's a lot to, to grasp. But we'll mm-hmm. do our best. Maybe. To, to wrap. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. We'll do our mediocreist. <laughs> That's all you get. If you want the good stuff, join Patreon at <laughs> patreon.com slash Hey, we have a new episode of Rapid Fire up just a few days ago, and you have one coming out, what, next week? Yep. A new chill factor. So Sweet. there you go. All right. Well, this week, we're coming at you with quintessential 80s, the event of the 80s. Oh. Well... I would say. It's pretty important. For pop culture, this is the event. Yep. The launch of MTV. Turn it on. Leave it on. America. Steven, you think you want it to I want my MTV. All right. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. Ow! 24 hours a day on cable TV. I want my MTV, MTV, MTV! Yeah, too much is never enough. MTV, well, even though we grew up in the 80s, I can't speak for you because your parents were lawbreakers and stole cable television, but... (laughs) No, we got free cable! (laughs) Okay, well, potatoes, potatoes. I didn't have cable, so I didn't get the glory days of MTV in the 80s. I really was more of a product of early 90s MTV, Mm -hmm. which had a lot of repeat from the 80s. However... I do have a little bit of experience watching MTV in the 80s with friends, and then also I'll get to another story later. But what about you? Did you have any experience of MTV in the 80s? No. Well, you're significantly older than me. (laughs) Okay. Well, (laughs) wiser for sure. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was, uh, I had no access to MTV till I was a teenager because I was living with my free cable in... A uh, very small town, and that meant 12 channels. I oh. think it, at the end, like at the end of our time there, it was 13. So I, we, at the maybe last year we lived in that small town, I got VH1. 
And I knew it was like a, a shadow of what it should be because I knew about MTV because I had read it in like Bebop magazine or whatever, Tiger Beat. I was waiting to see how long it would take for you to drop VH1 on this episode. We're like 10 seconds in. You know, when we talk about love at first sight, that was the only moment I questioned our relationship was I was like, ugh, she's really into VH1. <laughs> It was my only access. And like it got really cutting edge when REM came in. Okay. We like had a break from Ace of Base and REM came on and I remember Crush with Eyeliner and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, if only we were a nineties podcast, we could have a lot of fun. But we are eighties. We're talking eighties oh, yeah, 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 yeah. MTV and, and why we're talking eighties MTV. We're not talking about VH one? No. <laughs> well you're talking about VH one. <laughs> I wake up in the middle of the night to you talking in your sleep about VH1. Just whispering Ooh, Tom about Tom Petty, Tom Petty, <laughs> Katie Lang. But Come up with another one. I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> Brian Adams. <laughs> okay, we're talking 80s MTV, which was prime MTV. The golden era would never be replicated. Mm-hmm. When MTV was a pop culture powerhouse, like it was the the place that was dictating what everything should be, the trends, the music, the fashion and stuff like that. And yep. it came out of nowhere. So that's where we're going today. Before we can even kind of get into the launching of MTV, we've got to back it up a little bit. Yep. And we're going to lay down in a very abbreviated version, because we don't have all freaking night, is... Well, we we really do. We're actually, we do. Let's uh, zip back, unzip your pants. Okay, pull out the harpsichord. It goes back to 1776. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> okay, well, the early years of music videos is actually a pretty interesting story. I I need to distinguish, though, music videos from just videos of musicians playing, because obviously when... Oh, like cinema, live music? Yeah, when cinema was created, cameras were created, of course people started filming musicians playing. Yeah, I think that was Moybridge's second photo sequence was musicians. Yeah, I mean, right away. I mean, <laughs> why not? It was a horse playing a guitar, but... <laughs> um, and then also... Not Disney. You know, Disney cartoons were often set to music. That's not what we're talking about. No. We're going to really jump forward to more of the kind of modern groundwork for music videos. It's interesting because everybody leads to to a very specific one, but I'm going to I'm going to throw a wrench in this what, what? before we even get there. Guess who took credit? You might know this already. Oh. Guess who took credit for having the very first music video? Oh. Can I can I guess Andy Warhol? Oh, no. Even before that. Oh. The crooner, Tony Bennett. What? He said, he's trying to take credit for it. Actually, maybe. I don't know. In the 1950s, okay. he filmed a promo of him walking around London for his song, Stranger in Paradise. And it got uh, televised in the UK and the US. And he was like, that's a music video. I started it. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's not what we're really talking about. Shout it loudest and it's true. (laughs) Right. So what we need to distinguish is music video versus just kind of a music promo Mm -hmm. or musicians just kind of on camera performing their music. Okay. So yes, he did that. But what we're really talking about started in the 1960s. And that started with bands like the Moody Blues started doing this where it was more... uh, 
an actual video concept. Mm -hmm. The the really popular one would be in 1965 for a documentary called Don't Look Back, Bob Dylan's Subterranean Homesick Blues, you know, where he's holding all the signs and stuff like that. That's a music video in the earliest stages. So people had already started doing this. It was very uncommon, but it it was there. Uh, yeah, I think there was probably also, especially in the 60s and 70s, that crossover between art and music because those two worlds were really uh, interacting with each other. Yeah, and the, the other observation would be that early music videos in this sense were not music videos like MTV. These were more minor kind of visual promos to sell an album, which, yes, a video promotes an album, but it's not even kind of in the same way yet. So those had come out. Also in France, there had been this invention called the Scopatone, and that was in the 50s. But by the 60s, it was a video jukebox, which was really cool. Like, Mm -hmm. imagine one, but with a video component, too, that you put your money in. And it it was all the cool French pop artists of the 60s. Serge Gainsbourg, uh, Francois Hardy, like... Those kinds of musicians, you could pop your your money in there and watch a cool video from them. We've got a monumental wedding anniversary coming up this year. You could buy me one of those. I'll buy you one of those for sure. Drop a couple. And it'll only be filled with the moody blues. No, all Francois and Serge. So there obviously were some early indications that that there could be visuals associated with music. Mm -hmm. But like all things... (laughs) Everything funnels back uh, to the Beatles. Obviously. And the Beatles really, when you have that much money and that much fame, you can do things on a much larger scale. Yep. And it to just bypass all of this so um, nerds don't come at me, I know there's probably a lot of other cool things happening, but we're really, we got to move forward. The Beatles' Strawberry Fields Forever really was the game changer that went from musicians kind of hanging out looking cool to, to their music to an actual cinematic Uh, application to a music video where there were techniques and there were filters and there were camera angles and all Mm. these kinds of things. It was a conceptual It was really a conceptual art piece that created this totally new language of a music video that had really never been Mm -hmm. seen before. Mm -hmm. And from that, things really took off. You know, by 1972 and 73, David Bowie's making music videos to promote his stuff. By 74, we already get our first Australian TV show countdown and another one called sounds that starts playing these video promos in a weekly basis kind of slot on tv so already there's like these early indications of what would come but again this is like really the infancy stages of Mm -hmm. music video television where i think we should jump to is 1975 this is really the big moment from the beatles doing strawberry fields to 1975 and that is because Queen, Mm -hmm, I know them, you know, Queen was invited to do Top of the Pops, where they come on and do a live performance of their latest single. Mm -hmm. The problem was they were on tour. So in lieu of them performing, they created this music, this epic music video. Of course they did. Can you take one guess as to what song this was? Oh, no. What? Bohemian Rhapsody. This was really the first time where it was a music video, a full-fledged music video, televised on a TV show that kind of changed the game. 
So a lot of people do credit this as although it had already been happening a bunch, mm -hmm. this was really the first time that a music video and a single were like on the same playing field. Mm -hmm. And and from here, it started to become a common place where sometimes they would play music videos, sometimes they would have live performances. Okay. So this really got the ball rolling. And mm -hmm. then after that, um, everybody started to see the potential that like this was a, an art form that really was untapped. Also, totally off subject, but now I feel like watching uh, Wayne's World. No, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Party on. Well, in 1979 in the U.S., uh, a show called Video Concert Hall started, which just ran on hosted videos for from time to time. And then another show called Night Flight that had musical content, like concerts and stuff like that. Yeah. But it still hadn't fully developed yet. All that really brings us up to what we're talking about today, and that is how MTV came to be. So the idea for MTV comes from a 33-year-old at the time. He was a TV programmer named John Lack, and he was working for Warner Communications, and he was working on this experimental cable channel called Cube, which I'm sure you read about in yep. your research. This was really a, a, a new concept, this interactive concept, kind of the precursor to pay-per-view in a way where you could choose your own content and stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of the shows, one of the channels on there was called Sight on Sound, and it was dedicated to music. And he was working on that. So he had this idea already of seeing the potential for people being interested in a music channel. While he was working, he also was approached the same year, 1979, by a former member of the Monkees, Mike Neesmith, who had this idea. He had been filming clips of him, like, lip-syncing to his own music. Well, the monkeys had, like, a whole situation happening. Right. Well, he, on his own, was kind of stockpiling his own music videos. Okay. And he said, what if we created a show called Pop Clips, and it's just music videos to promote new albums? Did he just say, music videos of only me? <laughs> yeah, basically. No, no, no. <laughs> but, uh, as most great success stories go... Uh, Lack said, that's a great idea, and then went his own way. And ah. now he has a great concept because Mike had convinced him that music videos were really going to be the next big thing. So he said, well, damn, maybe I should take advantage of it. He could see what was happening in England with Top of the Pop. So there, it wasn't like this idea that just struck him as brilliant. He was building on successes of other other people and other stations or whatever. Yeah, I think so. And he took this idea and said, well, then how can I really develop this to a larger mm -hmm. concept? One of the smartest things he did was he hired a then 26-year-old TV programmer named Robert Pittman, who if you know anything about MTV, you're going to know that name, who had mean? worked in the 70s, late 70s, on a 15-minute music show called Album Track. So he already had experience hosting a music show. So the two of them got together. And they came up with this concept for MTV, which was going to not only be music videos, but the difference being hosted music videos. Mm -hmm. And in 1981, they presented this crazy idea to Warner Annex Satellite Entertainment, who Lack was working for. Okay. Who said, I don't quite understand what you're pitching, <laughs> but it seems cool. And they reluctantly agreed to a $20 million budget to get the cable channel up and running. Oh, just casual. And MTV was ready to go. Oh, man. 
Wow. What an exciting time. That's actually really good leadership, though, is just having enough faith in the personalities that you've hired to be like, okay, you do this. (laughs) See what happens. I'm going to throw, just toss a a little 20, 20 million your way and we'll see... We'll see what you do. If you suck at this, your life is over. (laughs) Totally. With that in mind, it was time to start MTV. That's right. Got $20 million and an idea? (laughs) Go ahead. You're 33. You've got it figured out. I couldn't believe how young they were. I think that's what I was most surprised by. No, no, no. You got to think 80s. You got to... It's like inflation. Okay. 33 now is 20 back then. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. So he was like 48. Oh, sure. That's Loctite logic. It kind of is, though. I still think it's pretty crazy to be that bold and be responsible. Although, as we're learning the more stuff we cover in the 80s over the years, a lot of these crazy ideas did come from just young entrepreneurs that were like, hey, if if it fails, I'm in my 30s. It's not like I'm in my 70s and this is my last ditch effort. Yeah, they're really flying in the face of the youth is wasted on the young statement. Also to our uh, listeners in the 70 plus, our geriatric listeners, Hmm. no offense by that last comment. You can come up with great ideas all the way till your dying day. Don't let anybody tell you when your story starts. Go get a doctorate at a community (laughs) college. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that too when I'm like 80. (laughs) (laughs) And your teachers will just give you A's because they feel sad for you. And I'll be that guy in the class that constantly raises my hand and keeps making comments. Oh oh my gosh. My very first class that I taught at a college, I had one non-traditional student. (sighs) Actually, okay, I got to just take (laughs) a little break here. So my very first day teaching, I went into into the classroom and I sat down like I was a student (laughs) and we all looked around and we're like where's this teacher coming and i was like i heard she's really hard (laughs) yeah right i did i told you about my plan and i did it and then i stood up and i said okay your teacher's not here guess i'll teach the class (laughs) (laughs) and then my one non-traditional student immediately raised their hand and it did not stop until the semester was over all questions, all the time. But their questions were like, I got a question, and then I'm going to tell you a story about my life. Totally. It's starting from 1946. <laughs> that being said, these people uh, were young when they started oh, yeah. on TV. They, they were not raising Remember, their Remember, that's what we were talking okay, about. Okay, here we are. <laughs> They've got $20 million. They're ready to start their station. Here we go. But with an idea to play music videos 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you need somebody to steer the ship. So they needed to um, get some hosts. Right. They wanted hosts like disc jockeys, like radio, stick with what's worked in the past. They'd give information on the music. But obviously these people were going to be on camera. So they were called video jockeys or VJs. Side note, I was actually really curious about why we even use the term disc jockey. Okay. I was like, educate us. Let me. So it's one of those phrases we all accept, but it really doesn't seem to make sense. So I looked it up. The term disc jockey was coined by a radio personality named Walter Winchell. Our uh, octogenarian listeners probably uh, know all about him. I feel like we're just digging our grave more and more. (laughs) 
<laughs> I really hope our listening crowd is like in the 18 to oh yeah 35 range. <laughs> well, Walter Winchell used it in 1935 to describe radio hosts who were using phonographs. Oh, okay. Yep. So, because they had to like get up on it. Wait, what? Get up on it. <laughs> Okay, and now that we all know that, we can get back to the natural evolution of phonographs to videos. The VJs, unlike regular old DJs, were going to be on camera, so we they had to choose hosts who were kind of hip and interesting. They, oh, they couldn't have radio looks, you mean? Yeah, they had to be camera ready. The station was originally trying to appeal to an audience between the ages of 18 and 34, but I think they ended up skewing a little lower. It was more like 12 to 24, although they did the full gamut because people inevitably ended up seeing MTV. It was just unavoidable. I don't know if you agree with this, but I'll say, especially into the 90s, the the hosts of MTV <sighs> always seemed so uncool. Like Kurt Lauder or whatever his name was. I mean, I was Loader. like, come mm-hmm. on. How am I? I can't listen to this guy talk. Well, he was supposed to be like a straight. You know, the guy with the news, the information. I guess some of them that you're going to talk about were kind of cool. Yeah. So the original five were Nina Blackwood, Mark Goodman, Alan Hunter, J.J. Jackson, and Martha Quinn. That's five people to split up 24-7. So let's take a little bit of a closer look at these initial hosts so we can kind of get an idea of what MTV was trying to accomplish. They didn't just like spitball. They had types that they were looking for. And they were going to be responsible for specific content or just all share the burden? They were all sharing the burden. I mean, people did find their like niches and it evolved as we will get uh, get to a little further along. But originally they were basically trying to scattershot and attract as many people as they could. So Nina Blackwood was... Maybe not famous, but she was known most significantly for her August 1978 issue of Playboy. Oh, okay. So she was like super sexy. She had kind of a sultry voice. She had actually gone to acting school and was just kind of trying to find her way into show business. And she was hired to be a host on MTV as like the sexy rocker vibe, like rocker chick girl. Okay. But she got hired and they asked her, like, you're going to get this job. Let's have a meal at some restaurant. It's a fancy one. I can't remember. But they were sitting down, ordered food, and she started choking, like straight choking to death. And they had to perform. (laughs) One of the execs had to perform the Heimlich on her. And they said, there's a better way to get attention. She said, <laughs> she said, I looked at it as like fate saying to take the job. So she accepted this job. So we've got our sexy rocker chick. Then we have Mark Goodman. He'd actually been a really popular radio DJ and he just sort of transitioned that success into an on camera role because he happened to not be. You could tell. Like an old man. Yeah. You could tell with his delivery. Also, for anybody interested, I love it. On YouTube, there is hours and hours and hours of the original mtv programming and it's so much fun to watch it is really fun to watch i'd seen a lot more than i thought i had mark goodman was like the average joe kind of the everyman so he was just reacting to this world and sure put in it. it it kind of was an at least for the white male a way to just be like i wonder what that would be like if that were me 
Then we have Alan Hunter. He had been a struggling actor. And he, if you have eagle eyes, he had a part in David Bowie's video for fashion. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine getting this gig, not knowing what's going to happen, and then it to take off and be like, oh, we'll get to that. These guys had no clue what they were in for. It was it was a lot like Pee Wee's Playhouse. People just kind of signed up and hoped for the best and were surprised. Interesting. We're going to come back to Pee Wee's Playhouse later. Okay. Nice tie in. Go back to that episode and listen. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So he had a chance encounter actually with uh, Bob Pittman in Central Park. Oh, okay. And he was an actor. He knew the grind and he'd been working as like a bartender and a waiter. Just, you know, all those jobs that actors work. But he got the gig and he played sort of like a jock character. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. He's just Right place, right time. Yep, absolutely. I mean, literally right place by running into Bob Pittman. Yeah. Being like, whoops, uh, hey. (laughs) (laughs) Then we have J.J. Jackson, and I struggle with this. He introduced himself as Triple J. Really? Triple J was another successful DJ. And if you see him, you'll see he was kind of uh, not as camera ready in in the strictest of sense, or in the strictest sense. Of the word, like he wasn't young. He was a little older than the rest of the crew. He was maybe a little later in his career at that point. It's got to be so awkward, too, if you have a career in radio Mm -hmm. to just sit in front of a camera. Yeah, he'd actually also been in the movie Car Wash, so he knew about the camera. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, and he fit the role of like the seasoned DJ who is like cool and knowledgeable. He had like, uh, he's credited with bringing the who to the United States and stuff like that. So he was really in the know and well known for that and respected for his knowledge of the music industry. So he was kind of a a good fit, I would say. And then finally we have Lil BB Martha Quinn. That's right. Who, by the way, she's aged well. She had done some work in commercials, like for McDonald's and stuff. She'd gone to college, and she was working like at a front desk of a of a what is it a dorm. But she had also just finished up a job as an intern, and her old boss made a call to suggest her to try out at MTV because she'd been like at a radio station just interning there. And it was their very last day of auditions. And they said, send her over. And she hopped in a car, like, immediately and drove to the auditions. Nailed it on an audition about Earth, Wind, and Fire, weirdly. Weird. (laughs) And they said, who are you? And gave her the job. When can you start? So all of these VJs were just kind of hired, but they were told not really to, like, buy a house or even sign a lease. (laughs) Like, it's going to fail. They Well, they simply didn't know. And I actually read none of them knew what any other was getting paid until significantly later. And they were not all being paid the same amount. Oh, shock. So it was kind of secret. And I mean, that makes sense because some of them had a lot, a lot. Yeah, of, I, mean, I think the DJ should have been paid significantly Yeah, they had more, real yeah, experience. Doing it for a career. Absolutely. But they also just didn't know about each other. For instance, Nina Blackwood was married, but they told her to keep her ring off. So she like accidentally came to set one day and they not- somebody noticed that she had a wedding ring and it was a surprise. Another story is that Martha Quinn 
went to like Scotland or something with her whole family, but with Bob Dylan, like as part of a <laughs> press junket and got injured in a bus crash. And it wasn't until years later that the rest of the DJs or VJs even knew that that had happened. Not even the accident, just that she had left the country with Bob Dylan. That's interesting. I got the impression that they were really close. They are. They're friends. But early on, it was like they were kind of kept separate. But they also were clearly like partying, living the nightlife. You know, there's all all these interviews with them. And it's always like, were you living the rock star life? And they're like, well, yeah, we had to be involved. So there's all kinds of stories about like cocaine and parties. And yeah, the 80s. Also, I would imagine they wouldn't have a whole lot of time together because they were hosting individually. Mm-hmm. So they were coming to the studio and doing their parts on their own. It's not like they're all hanging out in the room together at all times. Well, there was definitely crossover because even though it was 24-7, it wasn't live. So they would work weekdays. Mm-hmm. And each record their parts. So it wasn't like they didn't know each other, but their worlds were a little bit separated, especially at first. Okay, so we have the VJs chosen. It's time to get the show going. And so on August 1st, 1981, audiences heard this. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, or we've gone for main engine start. We have main engine start. Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. And that must have been a collective just holding your breath. And hoping for the best with the ratings. I can't even imagine that pressure. So this uh, theme was played alongside footage of a space shuttle launch and the original MTV theme song, which had been composed by Jonathan Elias and John Peterson. The American flag from the moon landing was changed to MTV's logo, which it's so crazy, it's iconic, it's so iconic, like right out of the gates. It's iconic. Yeah, and they continued to show uh, like an abbreviated version of this on the hour, every hour until 1986. Do you want to guess why? No, why? I've got this week's fun fact. Ooh, cool. <laughs> They stopped doing their original intro after the Challenger explosion. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah that it makes was sense. it was them like realizing, oh, <laughs> yeah, we can't continue on with this. I had thought it was like a rebranding situation, and they brought it back. What was it in the nineties? I yeah. think that we started to see it again, but they it kind of. went black on that for a while i think one of the best things about early mtv was this visual language that they were developing with Mm -hmm. all these little promos and stuff are so cool and they're so fun and a lot of the artistic qualities about them were very pop art they looked very warhol-ish and stuff and yeah I, i just thought that it was interesting even if the vjs seemed a little well some of them seemed a little older the actual look of MTV right away felt very fresh and interesting and, yes. and hip. And so I could see why they actually were pulling a much younger audience than they had been planning 
because it just I think it was a little cooler than even they were planning. Yeah, I think it blew everybody's mind because you have to really think about what was happening in the 80s. I mean, if you were young, who cares who shot JR? Nobody. You want to see your music? I want my MTV. It was amazing branding. Absolutely. They set themselves as cool, even though the I agree the VJs were like ever so slightly dorky. I think it put the viewer in that like that could be me. Yeah, I thought Nina was pretty cool, actually. Yeah, she was pretty cool. (laughs) And actually, all of them have gone on to have serious XM radio shows. They're all still doing well, except for JJ. He died of a a heart attack in 2004. But R.I.P. JJ. JJJ. Triple J. Triple J. (laughs) 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 All right. And so after their little intro, the first music video, I think this is one of those things that you assume is like your... Uh, trivial pursuit knowledge but nobody actually knows we all do know it was the bogles video killed the radio star This was brilliant. I yeah, mean, I do agree. This is the best one to open with. It's, first of all, a, an amazing song. The <laughs> video is fantastic. What more do you want? It's perfect. It did set the tone. I always, here's an interesting thing about just history is how many people were actually watching when this aired? Probably not very many. No. But because it went on to colossal success, that's always going to be played over and over again. So what's really cool is they probably couldn't have predicted that would happen. But imagine leading off with like a really lame, boring video. And every time somebody Googles, because it's like a top search when you look into it. Yeah. What was the first video ever played on MTV? Yeah. Perfect selection. They followed this up with Pat Benatar. <laughs> yeah, I'd followed up with Pat Benatar. Yeah. So in the earliest format, there were actually little gaps of black as the <laughs> tapes were changed which was really interesting and MTV was an instant success they hmm. they caught on i mean there was a, like a little lag time but it spread like wildfire and within a few months record stores were reporting sales in the albums that they were showing on oh, MTV. Oh, that's good. They, they had been featured and people came in to buy them. So it was like real numbers reflecting their influence. There was also a huge rise in the sales of British bands because they had been using all of this music or all of these music videos that were coming over across the pond because they'd been made for Top of the Pops. So bands like The Human League and then also Men at Work began to see their sales skyrocket in the U.S. As far as the formatting went, the VJs were like required to do intros, outros, interviews, music news, etc. Just kind of like all music related information to kind of feed the inquiring minds, which was great because this established them as an authority. They weren't just showing the videos. They were giving you the information around the videos. They were introducing you to the artist. So where else could you get all of those things in one place? 
I can't even tell you how many times, of course, in the 90s that I would learn about a new band or like wait up super late to see, you know, a Bjork video or whatever. The station played a range of music styles from new wave to hard rock, although their original intention was to be rock specific. And they actually basically made the career for Weird Al. I mean, that kind of will scoot a little bit ahead to mention him. I just didn't know where he fit in. Well, if you'd like to know more about Weird Al, mm-hmm. definitely invite you to listen to our episode dedicated to Weird Al in the 1980s. That was probably one of my favorite oh, episodes yeah. we've done. So they would all have guest VJs who would come on. They would run a segment of the show and kind of introduce people to the music that they said they liked. Who knows if it was pre-chosen. I mean, some of it was, some of it wasn't. But it really added to the legitimacy of uh, MTV. They also amplified exposure for these guest VJs because their videos are playing, they're on there talking, so it just makes them even more of a celebrity. And some of these guests were people like Adam Ants and Tina Turner And they also had people, comedians like Eddie Murphy on there. Sure. So within a few years, musicians and recording companies were kind of adjusting to this. And they were making music videos as a regular promotional practice. And in 1984, MTV changed their programming to show seven categories. They called New, Light, Breakout, Medium, Active, Heavy, and Power. Got that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Medium was basically their center point, and it was, it played established, like, charting musicians, and then they went kind of left and right from there. The move was sort of an attempt to give basically everybody in the audience something that they wanted so they could go oh okay tuesdays at four i get my flavor of music and they would tune in and another unexpected impact of mtv was its influence on dance culture so many musicians began incorporating dance into their videos because it was only natural. Well, what else are you going to do? Just stand there? But it was really interesting because we had dancers like Michael Jackson. Obviously, that's who you immediately think of. But then we have like avant-garde dance like Kate Bush. So it's this whole mixed bag, but it really influenced dance culture of the time. We even got David Byrne in a giant suit doing weird dance moves with the talking heads. Exactly. And there's like dance moves for like the cool kids and crap like that for us weirdos who can't dance but really want to like... Move our bodies. (laughs) I don't know. The programming is really interesting, though, when you talk about it. You know, you mentioned at first that there were these brief flashes of black sometimes because they were manually being switched. These tapes were being ejected and put in. That's crazy. So they would just sit around and wait. The biggest thing to know is when it first started, even the term music video was not, not known. Weird. If you would have said, put on a music video... People wouldn't have had a clue what you're talking about. So this was still pretty fresh. And Mm -hmm. the amount of musicians and and musical acts that were creating these promo videos prior to MTV, still, it wasn't a common thing. No. So when they launched, they only had so much content to use that Mm -hmm. they were repeating over and over. And one of the very interesting early stories is that Pittman was in charge of getting more content for MTV, and he went out to record companies and convinced them to not only drop tons of money on a format that they had not had any experience with, 
but then to allow MTV for free at first to play all of these videos. Now, that might sound crazy, but I would imagine, as you mentioned already with the record stores, you could see the payoff being instantaneous. Well, and honestly, like when you really break it down, a music video is a glorified commercial. It is, but it's also the perfect, if done right, it's the extension of that art form. And I will say my favorite musicians have really cool videos as well. And if if I love a musician and then they have a really lame video, oh, yeah. it kind of makes me like their music less. Oh, I know. How disappointing is that when you like, oh, yeah, so-and-so's got a new video. And then you go and watch it and you're like, oh, my gosh. It's them like rolling around on a bed in black and white. Come on. Yeah. And not to, you know, jump too far ahead, but I would say that's one of the downsides of when MTV started to switch, which we'll get to at the end of the episode, was that you lost that immediate connection, the visual connection to your favorite musicians because videos weren't coming out really anymore. And I'd say it's only recently in in a few years back that YouTube has really taken up that mantle of people making videos again in a regular way. It's really interesting that you say that. Just to interject here, one of the original VJs, I, I don't remember which one it was offhand, but they were saying that the next logical step from MTV is now YouTube. Like, you can't get that content anywhere but YouTube now. Yeah, but what's sad is you're missing all the little things that went between it, like the hosts and yeah. the interviews and stuff like that. So not to get too far off track, but... What you have now is record companies going, okay, so we provide a video. It relates in real time to sales. Yes. So we're going to keep giving you videos, which was good for MTV. Yeah, they need to feed that machine. The first few years, uh, you know, they're interviewing. There was not a whole lot of specialty shows beyond like, you know, the top 10 or the top 40. Yeah. One of the cool ones that started early on was called Cutting Edge. And this was uh, a show to showcase unknown acts of the time that they kind of had their finger on the pulse that they may break. And some of these early acts that got their first exposure on MTV on this show was Madonna, R.E.M., Red Hot Chili Peppers. So this is where they were first entering MTV, which is interesting considering... When you think of the 80s, like Madonna was MTV. Like oh, she yeah. dominated it. So it's so interesting to see that, that this started early on. What really changed programming from MTV being some fun VJs introducing music videos to becoming more of what we think of MTV yeah. is in 1985, a company called Viacom bought out Warner Annex Satellite, which you'll remember were the ones that, that started MTV. Mm-hmm. And... They changed the name to MTV Network. So now it was under new ownership. They had, you know, new money, new budget, new leadership. And this is where they really started to kind of think, well, what can we do beyond just showing music videos 24-7? Yeah, because that will get old. The novelty was probably wearing off at that point. And there were a lot of repeats. As you can tell, like... We have young kids that listen to pop radio and you hear the same song. You go to get the mail and you will hear the same song twice just in that one trip alone. So imagine that with visuals on MTV. Yeah. So in 85, this is when the main programs that you think about started to develop. 
One of the main ones that I just want to like kick this all off with was called Heavy Metal Mania, and it was hosted by Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister. Oh, my. <laughs> it was an hour once a month. Did just... you watch it? No, I've never. Well, I mean, I've seen it on YouTube, but I've... it was before my time. You're too young. But it was just an hour dedicated once a month to heavy metal music. And you'll immediately make this connection that, of course, it was the precursor because it went from 85 to 87 that in 87, one of the best shows ever, one of the best segments ever, launched Headbangers Ball. (laughs) Now, yes, this was... There were really two reasons for me watching MTV, and this would have been number one, was Headbangers Aww. Ball. You was a little tiny butt rocker. I loved it. And here's goes back to when we were talking at the very beginning of this episode about not having access to MTV in the 80s. I did get to catch it from time to time at a friend's house, but my sister, who is older than me, had moved out of the house, and she would she had cable in her new home. She lived on the other side of the country. Mm-hmm. She would videotape on VHS uh, hours of episodes of Headbangers so Ball sweet. and then mail me the tape. Aww. And I would just sit there and watch these uh, episodes of Headbangers Ball. So seeing like the world premiere of Can I Play With Madness by Iron Maiden, like I remember yeah. those specifically on the tapes that she was sending me. And you, the circle's complete because you have now shared them with your children. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. So this was a big one. Uh, you also had Dial MTV in 86, which was kind of the precursor to uh, Total Request Live, you know, that, that yeah. idea. The, the other big one behind, besides Headbangers Ball for me, and I'm sure for you, was 120 Minutes, mm-hmm. which went into the 90s and really uh, was pretty awesome in the 90s, too. So informational. This was the alternative program that introduced you to everything that was cool. So all the post-punk and new wave mm-hmm. and all that. And then in the 90s, it would have been all, like you were saying, Bjork and Beck and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That would have all come through 120 minutes. And then in 87, you get Club MTV <laughs> with Downtown Julie Brown, which is just basically like sexy young people dancing to music. Sometimes there would be some live performances and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And then the big one we have to also talk about, which was a blast to watch, was 1988. Yo MTV raps. So that was originally hosted by Fab Five Freddy, and then it went to the more standard host that you would know, Dr. Dre, obviously not that Dr. Dre, Dr. Dre and Ed Lover. And I really did, even though I was a metalhead, how could you not love your MTV raps? I really enjoyed watching that as a kid too. So (laughs) these are the mainstays. And when you think about the golden era of MTV, this is what you think about your MTV raps, Headbangers Ball, 120 minutes. So it was all there from 85 on. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. And they actually did some like VJ host reforming and... There was some changes made as they, I mean, they just had to move forward. Yeah, eventually you get people like, you know, Ricky Rackman who comes in to do Headbangers Ball and he 
becomes the the name that's associated with yeah. it. And then even by the 90s, I mean, when you think 120 minutes, you think like uh, Matt Pinfield and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. So yeah, you start to bring in a, a, a larger crew. I think Pinfield had a podcast, right? I don't think it's going anymore. But he had a really cool one and it had something to do with that. It was called like, uh, you know, whatever, 60 minutes with Pinfield. I can't okay. remember the name of it. I've listened to several interviews because when I was road tripping one time, mm. uh, my friend sent me a link to an episode of an interview with, I think, like Rivers Como from Weezer or something. Oh. And that was the entry, the the, the drug that brought me yeah. in. And I like, I went through all of the episodes. And, and Matt Pinfield, because he's just this incredible wealth of knowledge, yeah. was a great host. So yeah, I mean, if you're looking for old podcast episodes to listen to about musicians, that's a fun one. So even though Yo! MTV Raps was the big one for the late 80s, there was Mm -hmm. one more that we're going to squeeze in. Most people think of this as more of a 90s program, but it did start in 1989. It launched, and that would be MTV Unplugged, which was one that I really enjoyed. If you remember this, this was where they would invite musicians on to perform sets, but in a kind of quieter, stripped-down atmosphere without, Mm -hmm. you know, really loud instruments. So... Distorted guitars would be played more on acoustic guitars. This always annoyed me. I was like, they are clearly plugged in all over the place. (laughs) Quit lying. Yeah, and when you think Unplugged, you think of one performance in particular, Nirvana's Unplugged, that became a really good album and stuff. And if you're a Nirvana fan, cool. Um, That was not my favorite Unplugged performance at all. What was yours? My top two would be Bjork's Unplugged. I loved when she was touring for her debut album. And then the number one, of course, for me is going to be The Cure. Oh, yeah. Un- Unplugged mm-hmm. was so incredibly awesome. So there were some cool acts, but most of that happened in the 90s. But that started in 89. So, wow. I mean, all these really Just great shows. Just in yeah. under the dec- decade radar. But actually, we're going to go back a little bit. By the mid-80s, MTV had kind of expanded their influence. And... They were finding all of the success, but they kind of had to do something with it. So uh, they started to have some public initiatives. They've had many over the years, but in 1985, they began a safe sex campaign. And this may have been a bit of a response to backlash from parents who are questioning like the morals of music. I mean, I feel like that's its own podcast episode. Of, it will be. Yeah. Of, <laughs> we'll like, get to it. Music in the 80s and how, you know. Just censorship and stuff. We'll talk yeah, yeah. about that in a later episode. So maybe there was a little bit of that. Uh Anyway, MTV suggested that teens were more likely to listen to them than they were to their own parents. And they began their response to the AIDS epidemic. And I can tell you, some of my earliest memories of childhood are worrying about AIDS. Because for some unknown reason, my parents let me watch the news. So I was extremely aware of the AIDS epidemic. And I think most people were. And it was this mysterious terrifying thing that was happening yeah we talked about this maybe on a previous episode i'm thinking but same when i was this age and they were doing this i was in elementary and it was common practice to say like if you shared the drinking fountain you could get aids yeah that was a sincere scare yeah if somebody with aids looked at you and like blinked too hard so it's interesting that they were trying to do this and it's 
I would agree that um, they did have a captive audience that parents didn't have because you would see this later in the 90s with the Rock the Vote and stuff like that. You know? Exactly. Absolutely. That's right. So they use this as their opportunity to encourage people to practice safe sex. It's simple, but it's and now it's kind of banal. We're like, OK, duh. But at the time, it was like edgy and kind of on brand because we're all having sex, you know. <laughs> woo. So it was this whole like you're edgy, but also like be safe about it because you're smart and you're this modern person, whatever. So they're doing cool stuff like that, like forward thinking. But they took some backlash early on, too. They really came under fire early on for their lack of diversity. And this happened for a couple of reasons. Of course, they did play black artists, but there were many artists who were not getting airtime. One of those was Rick James, who was incredibly outspoken (laughs) about more inclusive programming when Super Freak was not given airtime. Or if they were getting airtime, it was at like... Two o'clock in the morning. I actually read that Carolyn Baker, MTV's head of talent in the early years, was the one who refused Rick James because she didn't like the way that he was representing women of color. (laughs) She herself was a black woman. Oh, really? So So, she was making her own stance against it. It will specifically Rick James. (laughs) Like, I'm not going to say for the broader picture, but she just said no to that one. So it would seem that uh, MTV was struggling with its identity a bit as they had originally envisioned themselves as a rock-oriented station. And that's a notoriously white genre, specifically in the 80s. And in an interview with David Bowie, and it actually just recently made the rounds again. I'm sure most of you saw it. It went, you know, through social media like everything does, a little wildfire. But it was David Bowie in the 80s, calling out MTV. I think it was 83. Yeah, it was 83. Yeah, we've been early on. He was being interviewed by Mark Goodman, and it's super awkward. And he just, like, straight out asked them, why aren't they playing more black black musicians? Yeah, and then the answer he doesn't deem appropriate and keeps pressing him on it. It's It's really, I mean, it's a valid argument that he's making. Yeah, it's fantastic. But it seems that MTV did get some racist blowback at the time, but it's really only part of a much larger issue. It wasn't specifically MTV, but the music music business in general. Sure. So black musicians were just simply not being given the same opportunities. And by that, I mean, of course, money. So they weren't getting money to promote any albums that they did happen to make let alone music videos. So there just wasn't as much available in addition to early MTV thinking they were just rock-based. Obviously, that changed. It's been said, actually, that Billie Jean by Michael Jackson changed the trajectory of MTV. And after that, because it was so popular, and they actually took some heat for waiting so long to play that video. (laughs) It's such a cool video, too. (laughs) Yeah, but after that, there was at least some representation of black artists that started to happen. So it was like it kind of cracked the veneer, maybe. Yeah, well, you got, you know, Lionel Richie and Prince, Prince Grant. Yeah, Prince was a big one. Electric Avenue. I I swear, (laughs) I sing that song in my head every day of my life. It is good. It was a slow start. And I think what 
probably happened is that they all were hesitant to take a risk and then Michael Jackson exploded. Yeah. And all they saw was not uh, equality, but dollar signs. And they were like, cool. Right. And by the mid 80s, they were introducing and embracing rap. They were introducing artists like LL Cool J, Run DMC to a wider audience. It changed, but it it had a bit of a rocky start right there. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) And we also would be remiss if we didn't talk about their VMAs. I mean, when you think about MTV, think about Madonna rolling around on the ground. Exactly. So (laughs) it took them a few years to get enough energy going. But by 1984, they had the brilliant idea to do the Video Music Awards or the VMAs. The very first VMA was the one that we all remember, though. Like you just said, with that iconic Madonna, like a virgin, rolling around. Shocking everybody (laughs) that's so great it's crazy now because we're like okay i mean think about what we see right now it's nothing like think about anything any musician does now and it makes that seem pale (laughs) but the awards were given they were given moon men of course hearkening (laughs) back to their perfect branding from their original airing of their very first episode and i one more thing I have to say, MTV Spring Break started in 1986. Oh, really? I didn't Mm -hmm. realize it started that early on. Totally. I thought it was a 90s thing, but it was a week of coverage starting in March, and it was an eight-hour day of live music and games and whatever weird crap they came up with, and it continued at least through the 90s, I think into the early 2000s. Yeah, I think so too. In Florida, and they would have like live music on. It was just them kind of trying to progress and be with the times and like hip. And I don't know, by the time I was seeing Spring Break, I was like, oh, great, Spring Break. Well, it wasn't our crowd too. I, <laughs> I mean, our, our crowd in high school wasn't wasn't going to Cozumel <laughs> no. to party in bikinis, that's no, for no, sure. No. Speaking of partying... One of the things I loved about 80s MTV was all their bizarre off-the-wall contests that they ran. Mm-hmm. Which is fun when you think about the link to radio culture. You know, you call in, you win a contest. So they got the bright idea early on to start doing these over-the-top, completely uncontrollable contests where on paper it probably looked amazing but in reality it was an absolute train wreck Mm -hmm. and i can't go through all of them but this is probably one of my favorite sub stories about mtv in the 80s okay are the contests so i'm gonna just walk through a few of my favorites one of the very first and Easily one of the craziest that I think there's been a documentary now. I'm not sure. Ooh, we should Ni- watch it. Yeah, I know. 1984. This contest was called Lost Weekend with Van Halen. I'm, some people may know this, but uh. this is probably my favorite. Well, one of my favorites is that the winner essentially got to go hang out and party with Van Halen while they were on the road. And the winner got in way over his head right away because you're talking Van Halen primetime 84, which was just filled with hardcore partying. And they were getting him like just wasted. At one point, I think David Lee Roth or somebody trapped him in a shower and was like with a stripper and was, you know, forcing him to drink until his friend that was along with this guy said, 
he has a plate in his head and is not supposed to be consuming alcohol at all and nearly died. This is a true story. So uh, Why did he want to hang with Van Halen? That's my first thought was that too. Why did you enter this stupid contest? You're it's not like you're entering with Kenny G. You're well, who knows? Maybe Kenny G can party. Maybe he's a break. <laughs> I don't know. But you're entering a contest with Van Halen. But anyway, yeah, this dude basically almost died. Ooh. So, same year, this is another very, very fun contest. One called Paint the Mother Pink. And it was a contest to promote a new single called Pink Houses by John Cougar Mellencamp. And you would win a home in his hometown that you had to then paint pink. Oh. The only problem is the home that MTV bought to give away was next to a toxic waste site. They couldn't live in it. (gasps) So they had to buy another home to give away. And it wasn't until the mid-90s that they finally were able to get rid of that house. (laughs) (laughs) So why I'm saying this is already you're starting to see a pattern of cool ideas with things that they didn't see happening. Uh Uh Let's flash to 1987. Of course I have to talk about this. They rope in Motley Crue to do Motley's Cruise to Nowhere. Gosh, this is a bad idea. Let's hear the commercial. The dream vacation. A luxury cruise to beautiful Bermuda. But watch the dream turn into a nightmare as a sunny, carefree voyage becomes a motley cruise to nowhere. Here's a chance for you and the guests to join the bad boys of rock and roll and their celebrity pals for a journey straight into the heart of the most dreaded stretch of water in the world, the Bermuda Triangle. Dead men tell no tales, matey. If you survive, you'll wind up on the pink sand beaches of Bermuda with $1,000 in your pocket. Plus, Canoe, the man's cologne by Dana, supplies the jet skis. Arr, shiver me timbers. To enter, just send a postcard with your name and address to MTV Cruise, P.O. Box 1211, Radio City Station, New York, New York, 10101. This is your chance to cruise with the crew. Pirate talk aside, they did their best. This is what it sounds like. You get on a cruise ship with Motley Crue, which in 1987. Oh my gosh. This is a heroin overdose era Nikki Six. I couldn't even watch that video or the movie of Motley Crue. I was like, never mind. This is horrible. Imagine going on a cruise ship with Molly Crew in 1987 and their friends and partying hard. So, oh my gosh, no thanks. 1988, in excess, is going to give away an entire trailer park in Texas. That's the weirdest. Bring them seriously, seriously love MTV's contest from the 1980s. (laughs) I want a trailer park in. Texas. 1989, MTV bought John Bon Jovi's childhood home. I kind of vaguely remember I do totally remember this one. To give away, the winner got it and immediately found out that it had $70,000 in taxes due and had to sell it right away. That's like the HGTV dream home. (laughs) totally like it. Where you like win it and then you're like, oh, I don't want to pay taxes on that. Speaking of that same year, another contest was to win one of the Batmobiles from the 89 movie from Tim Burton. 
The winner got it only to find out that it did not have an engine, so it couldn't run. And in the contract, you could not have it photographed for promotional uses, so you couldn't make any money off of it. What? And surprise, surprise. It was valued at like three hundred thousand, so it had seventy thousand dollars in taxes as well. I read an interview with the guy who won it and said when they found that out, the IRS were like, "Wait, wait, wait, no!" That he and all his friends realized they couldn't use it for photography, they couldn't drive it around, and they couldn't sell it, so they just sat in the Batmobile and smoked pot. Oh, I mean, what else are you gonna do? But eventually, he sold it. Nice. <laughs> I would I would have Fred Flintstoned it. Oh uh, yeah, for sure. And like just cut out my, the bottom and use your feet with your friends. <laughs> okay. You know where I'm going with this. I do. The one that doesn't even come up on the list, which is insane to me, my favorite contest from the eighties of MTV has to be the one that we dedicated an entire episode to. Go listen to it. It's one of my favorite episodes. Absolutely one of my favorite. Actually, when we started this podcast, that was on the very first, like, 10 ideas to start a podcast, Mm -hmm. and that was one of them. Episode 50 came out all the way back in November 2019. Oh, before we even knew COVID was a thing. (laughs) Was a contest to win a date with Prince... And to go to his world premiere of Under the Cherry Moon, and whoever won this contest, the premiere would be held in their hometown. Mm. And I'm going to leave it at that, because I really want you guys to listen to that episode if you have not. It is absolutely one of my favorite stories. I mean, come on. Like, you've got music videos, you've got interviews, live shows, you've got all these crazy programs going on, you've got Spring Break... VMAs, uh, you know, contests, MTV in the 80s, unless you lived it or have gone back and studied it, I don't think people can comprehend how significant it really was. Right. And with their sale to Viacom, they actually expanded their programming that was to make it more palatable 24-7. And that's why they were doing all of these yeah, things. Yeah, for sure. They also had shows like MTV News. They were all kind of music-based or music-adjacent. They introduced House of Style, which was a fashion one that ran through the 90s, uh, Club MTV, and Remote Control, which was a game show. Remote Control was fun. None of these were, like, exclusively music-related, but they kind of worked with the MTV vibe. But it was becoming more of a network, of a channel, I think is what it really comes down to. The problem with that is that with all good things, there can be a little too much. And I think anybody who is our age knows that we kind of saw that transition of of just amazing MTV, like where we looked at, I mean, the whole logo or the whole motto, I want my MTV, right? That's what put Mm -hmm. them on the map. It transitioned in the 90s from like MTV, which was something cool that I would want to watch became something kind of like twisted and weird. And I think that the first real unraveling was getting more and more programming that was getting away from music and the culture of music. Mm -hmm. And the big, big one that everybody's going to know is the real world, Mm -hmm. which at first I think we were all kind of like, uh, okay. I I watched the first season of The Real World it, later, like in retrospect. I think it came out in the early 90s. Yeah. But 
I loved it. I found it like it showed all these people. There was an HIV positive guy there. It was so like relevant. You were experiencing different races, different cultures. There was um, there was just so many things happening there that was more inclusive. And it was showing all these people, even though every single person was a mess or a nightmare. The first season, I think, was the most like, okay, well, they're normal people just struggling. And then it like went way downhill. Yeah. And so since this is about the 80s and we're not going to go into the 90s, we should, though, mention that what had happened was with the success of the real world, reality TV is taking off. And why wouldn't you bank on that? So Mm -hmm. you get road rules and all this stuff and quickly, very quickly. And I think statistically, it shows that it became like, you know, 20% of the time on MTV was an actual music video. Yeah. The 90s were a weird transition. You know, you still did have 120 minutes and unplugged and stuff. I would say late 90s is when it really started to flip. Yeah, because in the early 90s, you still had a couple really cool things like the big, big one would be Liquid Television, which Mm. I was a huge fan of, which was a very late night experimental uh, animated show. Oh, like Eon Flux? Eon Flux came out of it. Mm -hmm. Beavis and Butthead came out of it. And it was one of my favorite shows. But other than that, it was a, a really weird, awkward time. So it kind of only went downhill from there. And it, it's unfortunate. But really, we're talking 80 to, to mid-90s was was kind of prime time for MTV. One of the things that did continue in the 90s that started in the 80s was, and this is more about the legacy as we kind of wrap this up, is... In addition to giving a platform for musicians in a way that they had never seen before. I mean, this made Mm -hmm. massive careers for people like Madonna. Is that it also was a huge platform for visual artists and music directors. Mm -hmm. And starting in the 80s, this was huge. I mean, when you think about music videos of the 80s. The, the big, big ones that you're going to go to right away is going to be uh, Sledgehammer, right? Mm. By Peter Gabriel. I mean, this was a massive one, which interestingly was directed by Steven Johnson. And you may remember that name. We're going to plug our fifth one. <laughs> go back to our <laughs> episode on the history of Pee Wee Herman. He was the director of the entire first season of Pee-wee's Playhouse. Whoa. I've got something crazier, and this is really deep cut, and sorry to our listeners because we're going off track, but this is specifically for you, is that in addition to Steven Johnson being the director, you know who was leading the animation for Sledgehammer? Who? I did not know this until tonight. Who? The Brothers Quay. <gasps> Which, we are huge, surrealist, stop-motion animation fans, and the Brothers Quay are huge in our life. It's a little bit of a niche remark, it but is. okay. <laughs> I had no clue that they That's were crazy. involved in that. Oh I don't know gosh. how I've just never caught that before. Huh, it so, makes perfect sense. Other videos that come to mind, I mean, what, what can you think of? 80s music videos? Thriller. Thriller was the the game changer. That was a million dollar budget. And that had never been done before. Also, it influenced their programming because it was so long. They had to change like their formatting to fit it because it wasn't just a two, three minute music video. It was an experience. You had John Landis coming up to do that and, and Michael Jackson. It was huge. And then, you know, other videos like AHA's Take On Me and all this stuff. I mean, just really fun 
All the Weird Owls videos. I mean, oh, sidetrack. Side note, I guess. My dad sent me, what, what is it? The Austin City Limits? Aha, uh-huh, take on me. He does it like recently. So beautiful. Dude, Go watch got a it. Great voice. Cry that you aren't aging as well as him and you don't have that much <laughs> talent. His voice is so beautiful. They sound great. Go listen to it. But yes, Weird Al. Weird Al TV. Yeah. I mean, well, so. I guess the point being that in the 80s, this platform for directors that would go on to, you know, become more successful continued in the 90s, especially in the 90s. You get directors like Spike Jones and Michelle Gondry, who's doing all of Bjork's videos. Oh, they gosh. go on to become huge film directors. David Fincher was another one. And mm-hmm. even David Lynch did a Michael Jackson video. Yeah, yeah, I remember. You know, so I think that it's just really cool that I think people forget because of what MTV became that early on, this was the place for fashion, for art, for filmmaking, for music. I mean, this was really everything centered around MTV. And I, I, I would, I would really challenge somebody to argue otherwise. I mean, MTV was it. And then it kind of branched out from there. So yeah, I, I really, it's fascinating that it, in the grand scheme, it was pretty short lived. But the mark that it made on pop culture was, I mean, just uh, unbelievable. I would say that it really revved its engines, but in the end, it left just a skid mark. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for your final thought, Mariah. (laughs) All right, everybody. That's MTV in the 80s with that really intellectual summary. (laughs) Well, I hope you enjoyed it. I know I sure did. This was a fun one. We talked about doing this. Yeah. A lot to to capture. If we missed something, sorry, but... Suck it. This is already a long episode. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That is it for this week. Um, If you liked what you heard, the best thing you can do is tell your friends, tell your family. Rate. Review, subscribe, grab your friends' phones and secretly subscribe them to our podcast without them knowing. Please do it. Five cool points to every person who tells us they did this. Yes. Five stars, review. Please. Anything less, don't tell us. Actually, you'd just be a jerk if you gave us anything less than five stars. How rude. We're just trying. We're just trying to give you free content. We have children. But if you don't want free content, you can pay for more content at... (laughs) Patreon.com slash lasergraves, where you get all kinds of cool bonus stuff. (laughs) uh, If you want to follow us, we're at lasergraves.com. We're on Instagram at lasergraves. Our personal sites, I am at death at 33 RPM. I'm at Mariah Rose Swimmer. As always, please go listen to all of our friends' shows. We will share their shows and their episodes throughout the week on our own Instagram site. This was a lot of fun. It was surprisingly fun. (laughs) Yeah, it was really nice. All right, everybody. We'll see you uh, next time. Don't be a skid mark. Bye. Bye.